All right, go ahead, open up to 1 Corinthians. We are in the very last chapter. We'll do that after, uh, okay, I forgot to have the offering come by. If you'd like to give the offering today, you can do that on the way out. We'll have ushers by the door on the way out, and they will collect the offering. Thank you, team. Thank you. We're heading towards the very end of 1 Corinthians. We've got one chapter left. We've covered a lot of ground. Next week, my job will be to summarize a lot of the findings that we've had and, and look at what Paul says in his final words. The book of 1 Corinthians is this letter that Paul wrote to a church in the first century in the city of Corinth. And so we've learned a lot about Corinth at the time. We've learned a lot about context. And as we come to this last chapter, this is really his last words. We just got done with two full sermons in chapter 15, which was all about the resurrection. And we asked the question last week, what is heaven going to be like? Oh, and that was a joy to be able to preach. And I've heard from many of you already that many of you were impacted by that sermon. I was thinking this week, as many of you know, Pastor Tim Keller, a very uh, influential pastor out of New York City who passed away this week. And I couldn't help but thinking about last week's message on heaven and the glories that he's experiencing in the presence of Christ right now. Today's topic shifts a little bit to chapter 16 as we move from the resurrection to some of his final words, and we're only going to look at four short verses today on the topic of money. Very interesting. He's coming to a close here, and he has some instructions about how they're going to handle their money. Jesus told this parable uh, about a, or no, not, he didn't tell a parable. There's a story in the life of Jesus about a rich young man who came to Christ. Very fascinating story. We find it in Matthew chapter 19. This young man, he was a very successful young man. He made some money in his life. Comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, what do I have to do to, to earn eternal life? What must be true of me? And Jesus looks at this young man and uh, he says, well, we'll follow the law. Keep the commandments. And he says, well, which commandments should I keep? Right? There's 10 commandments. There's 10 of them. Which one should I keep? And and Jesus lists off all the commandments on the second table. There's two tables of commandments in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments on the first table are about a relationship with God. Honor God, don't bow to idols, keep a Sabbath, those kind of things. The other six are all about our interpersonal relationships. Don't steal, don't kill, right? Don't commit adultery, honor your parents. And so Jesus lists the following six, the ones about our interpersonal relationships. And this young man looks at him with a smile on his face says, well, I've done that. So are you saying I've got eternal life? And then what you'd expect Jesus to do next is to turn to the first table and say, whoa, 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 not too fast, young guy. Let's look at this first table and let's consider, have you honored God with all of your heart? Have you not bowed to any idols in your life? Have you kept the Sabbath? But he doesn't do that. Rather, what he does is he, he does that but by asking one particular question that exposes that he's failed to, live up to those first four commandments. What's the question he says to him? He says, if you would be perfect, Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. You can imagine this young man's face just wrestling with it. He, he just heard the, the six commandments, that makes sense to me, but what is this new one? Sell all I have and follow you? That one wasn't listed in the Ten Commandments. Just trying to wrestle with this, and you can just picture Jesus' face, his eyes staring him. Go sell everything you got. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And, and putting the option on him, what am I gonna do? And we read in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We like to skip over that passage as modern Americans because uh, we like our wealth uh, and, and, and we're not quite sure what to do with that. 
Um, but one thing we know, when we read that man, this young, rich ruler, the challenge he had was not just about money. The money was the surface issue that revealed he was failing to live up to the first four commandments, to honor God and to not have any idols in his life. Money had become an idol for him. It was something that he could not leave in order to follow Jesus. You see that? The way we handle our money matters deeply to the condition of our soul. Money has this wonderful power to be a tremendous blessing in the kingdom of God. God has made the world in such a way that money matters. Kingdom resources are vital to see the kingdom go forward. And yet, like every good thing, it can quickly become twisted. And it can latch onto our twisted and corrupted hearts. We've fallen, we have this sinful condition, and, and now money, which could be used for good, even in the hands of a follower of Christ, can now just become twisted to such a degree that it's almost like a cancer eating away at us. It kind of gets a hold of our heart and, and it makes us do foolish things that we, we don't really want to do. And in fact, sometimes it, it makes us not follow Jesus and follow its trappings. It's a deathly poison. In this final chapter, before we get to his final parting words, which we'll look at next week, we have to look at these four verses where he talks about how they handle their finances, an uncomfortable topic for the Western church. And just so you know, if you're here for us for the first, with us for the first time, I don't pick the topics we preach on. We preach right through books of the Bible. We're just going verse by verse, and here we are looking at this. And this is very important for Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's caring for this church as a pastor. So today, I wanna look at three principles for kingdom financial management. I wanna equip you. This is gonna be a highly practical sermon. I just want you to know that. We are gonna get super duper practical today, uh, and I think that's very helpful because I tend, I find as a pastor, I have a lot of the same financial conversations with many of you on repeat, and that's good, but it reveals to me we just need some kind of broader preaching on this topic. Three principles for financial management out of this text. They're this. First is the worship principle. Second is the planning principle. And third is the trust principle, okay? Verses one to four, let me read it to us. Now, says Paul, concerning the collection for the saints, that's the money that he's gonna receive, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. That's it, a few short verses today. But what's the situation? The church in Jerusalem is suffering. And so Paul is going around to all the different churches in the Mediterranean that he's helped plant, the church in Galatia, the church in Corinth. And he's going to these different churches. He's saying, hey, can I take an offering? Can I take a collection from you, a financial collection, to bring down to Jerusalem to help them? Because they're suffering greatly in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know the details of what was causing the suffering in Jerusalem. We can imagine that was where the gospel was first taking form amidst a lot of Jewish folk who were quite hostile to this new gospel coming forward. And so they were probably experiencing some suffering, persecution, loss of the ability to have a job perhaps like they used to because their community just won't buy from them if they're Christians now. Something a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters around the globe happens to them every day. They were probably experiencing something like that in Jerusalem. So he's taken this offering. The first principle we see is the worship principle. And the principle might be worded this way. How we handle our money is a direct reflection of our worship of Christ. How we handle our money is a direct reflection of our worship of Christ. Remember the rich young ruler. 
he had all these other areas of his life, as far as he thought, in, in alignment with God's word. He, he, he wasn't you know, having an affair. He wasn't stealing. He wasn't murdering. He wasn't doing these things that were against God's word. And yet, Jesus pinpointed the one thing in his life that was out of step, his management of money. And so money is a direct reflection of our worship of Christ. Paul begins, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. That term collection, it, it, it signals something to us. It signals at least two things. First of all, this was a collective work. This was, this was something that was happening a month among the whole church. This was not just a letter to one person. These are instructions for the whole body. Look, all of you, when you come together, here, here's how our, 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 our heart knit together as one should be thinking about what needs to take place as we care for the church in Jerusalem. Everyone among you needs to be a part of this. No one's off the hook. It's a collection from everybody. Secondly, the term collection, it doesn't signal obligation. It signals a free will offering. It's a collection. It's not an obligation. This is something that is not demanded of them, though we certainly see Paul is using quite demanding language. The words itself, actually, collection signals, I want you to bring this from your heart. This is not a law thing. This is, what's your heart allowing you to give in this moment? He says, as I directed to the churches in Galatia for them to do as well. And so we see this is not just an instruction just for Corinth. This was kind of a broadly universal expectation for Christians, that this is how they would behave. They'd come together, they'd bring their money together, and, and they'd serve the places in God's kingdom where money needed to go. They'd have eyes to see, okay, wh- wh- where do we need to push some finances towards right now so we can keep this moving forward and help the saints who are suffering? And all the churches, wherever they were, they'd have eyes to think in a kingdom-minded way, right? We're thinking, what's God up to, and, and where do we need to kind of push a little bit more finances into this? It should come as no surprise that God's people would be generous like this, right? Think about this. This is before email. This is before you got news traveling at you know, hyperspeed telling you what's going on in Jerusalem. This is first century snail mail on horse <laughs> at best. And yet they know what's happening in Jerusalem and they're concerned about it. The church in Corinth is thinking, man, my brothers and sisters are suffering. How do I be a part of relieving them? It's interesting, many of us don't have that same passion and yet we can turn our phones on right now and find out exactly what's happening around the world. But we, uh, our first heart check for us today is we don't have the heart to care that much that perhaps we can be part of, the, of changing the suffering of Christians around the globe. It should come as no surprise that God's special chosen people, followers of, of Jesus who have been changed by Christ would be an overwhelmingly generous people. This should be not to be surprising to us. Christians, obviously, should be the most generous people. Jesus has been generous to us. There should be an overwhelming sense in a follower of Christ that I am just gonna live with very open hands. There's gonna be a, a marked delineation between me and the non-follower of Jesus next to me in the way we handle money. There should be no comparison. You look at our bank accounts, you look at our, our, where our money is going to, it's just different, very different lifestyle here. Why is that? Well, handling money for kingdom purposes is consistent from the Old Testament all the way through the New. All the way from the beginning, God had a plan that God's people would be generous. So in the Old Testament, we read of the tithe, the tithe. Some of you know that word. A tithe simply means a tenth. The people of God in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, were required to take one-tenth of everything they earned. Now, in those days, money wasn't money. 
in the same way it was today. They didn't have, they didn't have dollar bills. They had cows and they had sheep and they had, you know, they had resources. And so they had to take a tenth of everything that they had and they'd bring it and make an offering. In fact, it wasn't just a tenth. It was actually a third. Most, most people of God under the old covenant would take 33% over the course of a year in the various offerings that were taken and mark it for kingdom work. And then they would live on the other 66%. And you still had phenomenally wealthy people in the Old Testament, like Boaz, for example. And what do you find Boaz doing? A very wealthy man. He's got many men working for him. He's giving probably 33% of what he's got, living on the rest. But then still with the rest, he's living overwhelmingly generous towards young people in trouble, like Ruth. And he cares for her over and abundantly. Deuteronomy 14, 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So take a tenth. Now, again, it was a third, but the rule was a tenth. Now, now, this tenth was part of your overall income. It was part of everything that you had, and it was to be marked for specific purposes. Now, what happened with that tithe? You take a tenth. What was the, the follower of God in the Old Testament thinking? This is, where my res- this is the reason I'm giving this money. What was their motivation for it? Well, there were at least three big ones, three big ones. Number one, the first motivation was a heart of worship. It was a heart of worship. It it signaled to them this, this message, everything that we have, whether you're wealthy or in poverty or anywhere in between, everything you have has been gifted to you, assigned to you, and you have been commanded to be a faithful steward over it by a sovereign and providential God. Nobody is outside of God's providence. However many numbers are at the end of your bank account, it's God's providence. He organizes it perfectly. And praise God, it's under God's providence. Now, as followers of God who know that, we look at it and we say, out of a worship of a providential God, part of what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a tenth of that and just trust you with it. That's part of my worship. It signals to you, my God, I trust you. You see that? Secondly, it fueled the work. So it fueled worship, but then it fueled the work. In the kingdom of God, there was a lot of work to get done. In the Old Testament, there was a temple to maintain. There were priests to maintain. There was education to maintain. There was tons of work that was happening all across Israel. And the tithe went to supporting that work, getting the work done. How was it all going to get done? How was the building going to be maintained, the temple where the glory of God dwelt in Jerusalem? How was it going to be maintained? How were the priests going to be fed and, and, and survive? Well, everyone came together. And, and so when you gave 10%, the person in the Old Testament was thinking, the kingdom's got to keep going forward. I joyfully give towards that. Number three, it fueled, it provided for the vulnerable. So it fueled worship, it fueled the work, but then it provided for the vulnerable. This was functionally a welfare system. And so we read in Deuteronomy chapter 14, 28 to 29, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, that's the priests, the Levite, because he has no portion of our inheritance with you, so priests didn't have own land back then, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. He lists a handful of categories of very vulnerable people in those days. Folks who might not be able to survive if someone doesn't come along and help them. They shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work their hands are doing. This is interesting. So part of the heart of the tithe was worship. Part of it was, let's get the kingdom work done. Let's see the, God, let's see the glory of God go forward. And then part of it was, we better make sure that no one's suffering among us. There, no widow is gonna die on our watch. No, no, no fatherless child is gonna go without food. 
while I'm storing up a big bank account over here. Among the people of God, that's just not gonna happen. We're gonna take care of one another. It doesn't mean that there weren't poor among them. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor among you. It just means that God's people were motivated by something more than building their bank account. They were motivated by love that had been showed to them by God, and now they wanted to transfer that love in a similar way to everyone among them. So if you were in the people of God, you're going to be provided for. Now, in the New Testament, the tithe does not work in exactly the same literal way. Well, why? Well, we don't have a temple anymore, a physical temple that needs to be maintained. We don't have a priestly class that needs to be maintained, right? right that, that don't, we don't have that. Instead, what we have are the people of God that are the temple. You are the temple. We still have kingdom work that's going forward, though. The gospel is still going boldly forward to all nations. Jesus has a commissioning over every one of our lives to be a part of it. And so the same principles and motivations that fed the the person of God in the Old Testament to give a large portion of their overall wealth towards kingdom work, those same motivations now fuel the follower of Jesus. How? Well, uh, it fuels a heart of worship. How is this? Well, giving financially towards God's work builds builds your joy in God's work. See, if you're not... If a follower of Jesus is not saying, I want to give a portion of what I have towards kingdom work, then what they're saying is, I'm concerned, but I'm not really concerned with kingdom work. I'm not concerned enough about it to sacrifice anything for it. I'm concerned about it in the sense of I want to be a part of a church, perhaps, but I don't really want to give up what I have to see the kingdom work go forward. And so it's a worship issue, first and foremost. This is why Jesus taught more about money than any other person in the entire New Testament, in the entire Bible. He spoke about money all the time. Many of his parables had to do with money because so much of it was wrapped up in our worship. Money, more than anything, has this ability to be an idol in our life, rob us of worshiping God. Secondly, it, it fuels the work of the church. How is it that we have an adoption fund that we can be giving out tens of thousands of dollars regularly to willing families who are adopting children in this church? Do you know why that is? I mean, the money doesn't just magically appear though God could make that happen. (laughs) He's done crazier things. But on a normal day-to-day basis, it happens because all of you give faithfully to this church. How is it that that the work keeps going forward, that people are being trained in gospel in in how to grow in maturity in Jesus Christ? How is it that we can have a place like this to gather on a Sunday so the gospel can continue to go forward in the preached word? How, How does it all happen? Well, it happens because we faithfully give. How is it that we support missionaries that are going overseas? Missionaries that are raising funds right now. Well, because Christians are giving generously. Not just out of obligation, but because we see the kingdom work and we say, of course I want to be a part of that. That you you gave me the money in the first place. We're not going to hold it back from being a part of what you're doing. Third, we provide for the vulnerable. Second Corinthians, this is New Testament language. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse two, two, for the ministry of this service, that's the giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So it's supplying the needs of the saints. It's, it's supplying food and care and, and, and homes and, and protection for the most vulnerable among us. Money is a sacred tool. It's sacred work. And as a follower of Jesus, when you come into a room on a Sunday like this, into a church, my number one job, the thing that that I labor over every week before I I step into this pulpit is, Jesus, would you 
would you, by God's grace, help me to paint such a heavenly picture, a word-based heavenly picture of Jesus? Would you help me to lift all of our eyes to the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus in such a way that that our hearts would radically be changed because we got a glimpse of who Christ is and, and how much he loves us. And then God, would you, would you allow our, our love of God to work its way out in, in very practical ways that our life would be changed? And so money is one of those practical ways. When I think about preaching a sermon on, on, on money, what I'm thinking is, God, help us to be so overwhelmed by your vision of how this ought to work that we're forever changed, that now, now we'd step into this and we want to be like the people of God. We, we would be done with tipping Jesus a couple bucks here and there. And we would say, God, what does it mean to tithe? In fact, if, if we have a greater covenant than the people of the old covenant, then what does it mean to go far beyond the tithe and to live a life of generosity? Because the gospel's changed my life. See, I want to ask some questions. I want you to scan your heart right now. I want you to, I want you to ask this of you. Are you concerned about your life being fueled into worship by the way you handle your your money? Has that ever crossed your mind? Even for those of you that give regularly, now this is, in this church, many of you give monthly, and therefore it's it's regular and it's out of sight, out of mind. And for you, I want to push on you right now. If it's out of sight, out of mind, this is a worship thing. Is the way you handle and you give, is is it stirring worship in your heart? Number two, are you concerned and prayerful about seeing the work of God's church here and around the globe develop and be strengthened through your finances? Has that ever been a concern to you? Do you labor over it? God, I want to see the kingdom go forward. Use my, use my wealth to see that happen. Has that ever concerned you? Number three, Are you concerned about the vulnerable and the poor being overly provided for, not just to get by, but to flourish and to get out of generational poverty through your help in this church? Do you think about it? Do you think organizationally, I know my church is taking care of that? Or do you say, no, Jesus, you've changed me. Now now take my money. What, What do I do with this? Where do I need to push this? You see that? I'm scanning the heart right now. And I'm asking you some personal questions that should check your motivations. And the prayer with asking this is, is to say, God, if anything in my life is out of alignment with your word and the motivation of the saints, now is the time to bring me into alignment. Now is the time to do some good work in my life. Money is a sacred tool, and how we handle our money is a direct reflection of our worship of Christ. It's the worship principle. Second principle is this, the planning principle. We're gonna get really practical here. The planning principle. Chapter 16, verse two. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, what's the challenge here? Well, it's really easy. He says, says, on the first day of every week, and what's the first day of every week? That's Sunday, okay? So on Sunday, that was the week when the church gathered. Now, why would he do it on that day? Well, it's probably because they were having some worship moments like we were just having a moment ago when we were singing our hearts out to Jesus and I thought the roof was gonna blow off the place and my heart was gonna explode and I didn't wanna stop. And so he's like, yeah, when your heart's in that mood, okay, (laughs) when when you're stirred up and the zeal of God is moving and the Holy Spirit, I leaned over to my nine-year-old while in the middle of the worship, I leaned over and I said, 
What you're feeling right now is the Holy Spirit moving among the people of God. That's what I whispered in my child's ear. He said, when that, now when that is happening among you on the first week, when you're passionate about the, right? Then take a collection. Uh, uh, wait, wait till the moment when you're just bursting. Then take a collection financially, real practical, okay? Take some money aside and set it up so that it can be given towards where it needs to go. And then he says, as each may prosper. Now, what does that mean? That's very important language here. It means that everyone's gonna be in a different financial situation, right? First century Corinth, some are gonna have much, some are gonna have very little. Some might have even been slaves in that day, right? Part of the church, we know that. They have very little to work with. So now, as each may prosper, those who have much, those who have little, everyone just pay, everyone take a little bit, give towards this, be a part of it. Now, Kenson Lamb, who preaches on finances, every time he's preached on, on money, he has just brought conviction into my heart. And he said something years ago that my wife and I have put into practice over the years. And, and this came from Kenson. And this didn't come from me, this was from him. He said early on, his wife and him said, we want every year to increase the percentage of how much of our overall income we give towards the church and God's kingdom. And he said, we started at 10% because that's God's plan. You start at 10%. We're gonna get to that in the practicals in a moment. 10% is a good baseline, right? So start at 10%. And then every year as you're redoing your budget, pray, God, what would it mean to give 11% this year? Or maybe if you're scared of what that means, what does it mean to give 10 and a quarter percent this year, right? But to increase it. Now, why would that be important? Well, not always, but... But in most cases, in a, in, in a lot of cases, especially in a, in a society like America, over time, your income tends to grow. That is not everyone's story, but it tends to be the story here. Over time, your income grows, your means grows, your ability grows. And so 10%, I'm just gonna throw some numbers out here just so you can kind of work the math with me a little bit. Let's just say you're making $40,000 in a year and you give 10, you give 10%. Well, that's 4,000. That means you have $36,000 to live on. Plus, you got to do taxes and all that. That's not, that's, that's not a lot in the city of Chicago. But let's just, I'm going to put a random number out there. Let's say your family is bringing home $120,000 in a year. And if you're still giving 10%, that means you've got $108,000 a year to live on. Now, make sure you understand me. What I'm not saying is that everybody needs to give so much that, you're all, that everyone's living in poverty and there's no such thing as having wealth, having savings, having inheritance. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, Bible has a lot to say on how to handle an inheritance. That's a good thing, the Bible says. And yet, 10% 20 years ago, you might have really felt that. But 10% now, you could kind of do it without blinking and get the tax write-off for it. And there's no worship. And so Kenson's principle of giving an increased percentage every year has stretched my wife and I every, every year. I'll tell you, sometimes you look at the numbers and you go, Whew. okay. And you know what? He provides over and abundantly, over and abundantly in, in mysterious ways. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Meaning don't... Don't tell the person who's got nothing to, to give to. No, support the person who's got nothing, but make sure those who have are giving lots. You see that vision? It's the church coming together and caring for each other. Increasing generosity every single year. That has, that has been a principle that Kenson taught me that has been beautiful. 
Statistics. What, what do statistics say? I don't know the details. There's a firewall between me and finances at this church. I see the overall numbers, but I don't know who gives what. I don't know anything like that, and I, I'm glad for that. I don't want to know those details. But here's general American statistics. You ready for it? 5% of Christians in America tithe. 5% of Christians in America take 10% of their net income and give it towards the church. 5%. Of the 5% that tithe, 77% of them give well over 10%. Now, we could be talking about any topic right now, not just money, but this is, tends to be how the church operates. A very few do an exorbitant amount of work. That was not Paul's vision. That was not the vision Paul had at all. If every Christian tithed 10%, faith organizations, including churches, would have an additional $139 billion each year to see the kingdom go forward. So I want to go back to those questions for a second. Are you motivated as a Christian to see the kingdom of God go forward? To see missionaries sent out? To see cities changed? To see lives transformed? to see unjust laws overchanged and to see new right biblical laws put in their place. I mean, I mean, does that like get you excited to the point that yes, I want to be a part of that. If not, there's a worship situation going on. That's, that's an issue between you and Jesus. You got to work out because something's broken in your, in, your, in your relationship with Christ. There's a lot of work to do. Five per, now, why is that dearth there? Why, why is it that 5% of Christians tithe? I mean, God, God has given us these instructions. These are not hard to come by. I don't, I, I don't think, I'm, I'm probably not preaching a sermon that many of you have not heard some form of this at some point, right? If it's brand new, I'm, I'm glad. But why is it that the rich young man had to walk away from Jesus? And why is it that 95% of Christians are doing the same thing? Well, it's because money's an idol, that's why. Money rips on, it holds onto your heart. And we like to, we, what we do is we like to fool ourselves into believing, believing that we're very generous people. When in reality, the standard scripture has set for us, we're nowhere close. We're nowhere close. Our handling of money is a good indicator of our worship of Christ. First, first Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Why is money an idol? Well, let me give you five reasons. One, money um, shows, when you have a love of money, it shows that you're trusting in the extent of your possessions and not trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ to be over your life. So if there's an idol there, you're holding on to money, you're trusting in your wealth, you're trusting in your insurance policy, you're trusting in the things that you have rather than trusting God's got you, right? So if, if you can't release it, right, then you're trusting in that instead of trusting in God. Number two, it shows the idol of money reveals a discontentedness when God's called you cont to contentedness, right? It reveals that we've not yet mastered the spiritual discipline of being content in Jesus Christ, knowing that he, is, he went to the cross to give us new life. And, and though our life's gonna look very different from what the world promised us before, he, he will always give us what we need for that moment. And to only be worried about today and not for tomorrow, he, we're not content. We haven't yet learned the joyfulness of, of being content in whatever God has provided for us today. The love of money robs us of biblical contentment. Number three, it reveals an unwillingness to sacrifice right? An unwillingness to follow Jesus. Wasn't it Jesus who said, pick up your cross and follow me? 
If we're unwilling to sacrifice, what that shows is that the idol of money has, has got a hold of our heart to such a degree that we're unwilling to pick up our cross and let go of what we're being stewarded with. And so, and so really that's, you know, we don't want to sacrifice all that much. Meanwhile, Jesus is on the cross saying, be like me, right? Let me go all the way and show you what sacrifice looks. I'm going to give my life so that your sins can be forgiven. I'm going to, I'm going to give my life so that you can have new life. And we don't want to sacrifice anything. Why? Because the love of money is an idol. Number four, it, it, it reveals a failure to prepare for hardship. See, many of us don't realize that when we have the idol of money in our life, we are setting ourselves up for catastrophe. And what happens is that the, the, money, the money that we're holding on to, and when we're not doing what the Bible says and we're holding on to it, that money is it's like a ticking time bomb that's going to cause blow up in your life. I have pastorally counseled through a number of those blow ups at this point, a number of them. And they usually center around marriages. That money just works its way in and then it blows up and then it was money was, now what was happening? All the while, they, things were looking good. Their situation was good. You know, they had the money they needed. You know, they were given a little bit, but there wasn't biblical generosity, but, but they felt good about things. Meanwhile, this idol is just festering, 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 and then catastrophe, and it blows up. And when did it need to be dealt with? When, when did, because, you know what, I've done that. I've sat in those meetings before, and I've looked them in the eye, and I've said, the, the problem is the money. You've, the problem is the money. Look, don't do it that way. Do it this way. And they'll look at me as stubborn as ever and say, that's not the problem. You can't see that's the problem? What, what, what has to happen? What has to happen for you to see that that's the problem? I've had that number of times. And what has to happen is, all the way back here, before you get to the blow up, you need to get your life in line with Jesus. And you gotta start living the way the Bible tells us to live. You see that? We don't realize catastrophe's coming our way. Number five, we have a lack of an eternal perspective. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store your treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and neither treasure nor uh, thieves break in and steal. If, if, if we're not fueled by giving, by, by, by working the kingdom of God, we don't have an eternal perspective. The last two sermons I gave on 1 Corinthians 15 do not apply to us. They don't. They might have tickled the ear. You might have left excited, but, but if you're not eager to see the kingdom go forward, to see many more participate in the same heaven that you say you're gonna be a part of, uh, it's revealing some issues here. The love of money, money is not the problem, right? And the money can be a wonderful thing. It's a tool, it's a beautiful thing. God, God can use money to do extraordinarily wonderful things and has and continues to do it. And yet the love of money, that idol, it gets a hold of the American church. You know, one of the things I, I think is really helpful for American Christians to do is to get out of America and go visit churches in poverty around the globe, true, true poverty around the globe, and see the generosity they live, live with. When, when they're making nothing and they're giving the shirt off their back to help those who have even less than them, it puts things in perspective in such a way that you come back here and, and you just think, what are we doing? How did I, I got a little off track here. Right, perspective helps sometimes. Money will always let you down. It promises you everything God promises. This is why it's an idol. Money promises you everything God promises you. It's gonna be there for you when you most need it. 
right? If everything in your life blows up, at least, at least you're gonna have money to lean on, right? It's gonna make you comfortable. It's gonna provide your daily bread, right? It can buy you friends. If you got enough money, throw enough money around, it can buy. It's promising to be God in your life. But Jesus is a far greater savior than money. And this money, this, when you let money be a God, what you're actually worshiping, and this is extreme, you are worshiping the devil because it's his play right now. It's his play. If I can get them to get their eyes off Jesus and worship something else, then what you're doing is you're worshiping his techniques, his tactics. And, and now you've got to get your eyes off of that. And you've got to say, Jesus, you went to the cross for me. My life is redefined. You've elected me before the foundation of the earth. I have no right to be a called a Christian, but God, you've loved me. You sent Jesus to give his blood, his life. He went to the fullest extent possible that I could have life to the full. God, now help me. Help me to live like someone who's been changed in every area. That includes my money, God. Help me to be the kind of person that's so joy-filled at giving away. Not joy-filled at seeing another zero added on my bank account, but joy-filled at giving away that, I, that I'm a living reflection of a person who's been changed by Jesus just by the way I handle my money, right? The gospel's gotta take a hold of your heart. See, first and foremost, this is a worship issue. Now let the gospel enter in, and if anything I've said today has made you say, man, do I have a worship issue? <laughs> the answer might be, you do. And, and, and what, the, what the response is, is Jesus, I trust you. Now, now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, see change in me. Let me change, let me come into alignment with God's word. Every Christian family needs a plan. Let me get very practical here. Every Christian family needs a plan. Begin with 10%, 10%. Learn to give 10% of your net, not gross, net income. Wait, is that right? What's before tax? Other way around? The financial guys are looking at me. Gross? Okay, thank you. Gross. That was the... Uh, <laughs> thank you. That changes everything. Did I say 169 billion? I meant 200 billion. Learn to give off your gross, okay? That was the picture of the Old Testament. Everything you have, you take 10%. If you feel like that's a lot, okay, this isn't law. This is, this is free will offering. I'm trying to bring you alignment with the motivation of God's people. That's what I'm trying to do today. I want your heart to change. I'm not concerned about getting more money for the church. Church is gonna be great. God always provides. Even when we have a shortage, he provides over and abundantly. I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm grateful. I'm concerned with your hearts, worshiping Jesus properly. Learn to give 10%. If you have bad debt that's hindering you from that, get your debt paid off. Do it hard and fast. Work double, double time. Take a second job if you have to. If you've got bad debt, credit card debt, the wrong kind of debt, the kind of debt that you don't want, biblically, get that paid off very quickly. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 26 to 27. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? The, the Bible says don't take bad debt. So if you've, gotten, if you've taken bad debt, repent of the sin, pay it off hard and fast, and then, then start giving the way that God's called you to give, okay? Number three, if you've fallen into financial hardship, let the church come around you. If you're in a season where you're just saying, I, I, I don't, I can't give, wonderful. You don't need to give. What I typically say is, learn to have a habit. If you have a quarter, learn to have a habit of giving, just so you keep that rhythm in your mind of this is what I wanna do, but let the church over and abundantly provide for you. By the way, that's what we do monthly. We are providing for families in this church. We give thousands of dollars away every month to families who need it in this church. So if that's you, 
receive. You don't need to give. As each may prosper. For families who are just starting out, here's, here's really practical. Learn to live on one income, preferably the husband's, right, as the head of the household, although every situation is different, there are unique circumstances. Learn to live on one income. And if you have two incomes, great. Save and give extraordinarily, but live on the one so that when you have children, if you have children, and the wife chooses to stay home, you don't have to radically reorient your life in order to keep living the same lifestyle you've developed. If you suddenly drop the second income, now you keep living on that first income, nothing changes, and you can still continue to tithe just the way you were before. I told you, it was going to be practical, right? If you're getting married, learn to live on one income. Support missionaries. Where's Brianna? Stand up, Brianna. Brianna is in the process of raising support to go full-time staff with Athletes in Action. In order, she's gonna reach college students around this city with the, you can go ahead and sit down, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The work they do is extraordinary. We have a handful of other folks who are fully, full-time support. We've got missionaries overseas right now in some of the hardest places on the globe. Our church collectively always gives towards our missionaries. We give up quite a lot of money monthly to support the missions work they're doing. But they need more than just what our church collectively can give. They need you to get behind them. The book of 3 John in the Bible is all about supporting traveling missionaries. Did you know that? Get behind them. Finance our missionaries. Brianna's right here. Find her after church. Let's load her up. She's got some work ahead of her in terms of raising support. Second one, every Christian needs a plan to give faithfully and let that plan grow over time. Third and finally, I'm gonna wrap up on this one, the trust principle, the trust principle. Verses three and four, he says this. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul's concern in this section is about trust. They're about to send a bunch of money that they saved up on a really dangerous road from Corinth to Jerusalem. And he goes, look, I wanna make sure you trust where this money's going, okay? It's not gonna get robbed. Whoever you accredit, Whoever, whatever systems you are gonna make you most trustworthy, you're gonna feel most good with, let's put that in place. I want you to feel good about this. So I don't want you to feel like you're throwing money away. And then Paul says, look, hopefully I'm an accredited person. I'll accompany it if you need it. I'll, I'll, I'll set myself apart to make this journey with the money to make sure it gets there safely. Are you a faithful steward that can be trusted with God's finances? Jesus told this parable, Matthew chapter 25, one that has haunted me many times over. Tells a story, a, a talent, uh, the word talent, was a form of money in, the, in, in those days that was worth roughly about half a million dollars in today's exchange, okay? So Jesus tells this parable where he gave uh, God, or this master, gives three different servants different amounts of money. He gives one servant five talents, right? That's a lot of money, a few million dollars. He gives another servant two talents, still a lot of money, and another servant one talent. That's still a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money overall. And, he, and then he leaves, and he says, okay, be faithful with it, okay? The master comes back after a couple years. He finds out what the servants have done with the money that he gave them. The guy with the five talents has turned it into 10. He invested it. He took a few risks with it, but he, he put it to work. He, and, 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 and he says to him, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He goes to the guy with two talents. He's turned it into four. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will put you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He goes to the guy who had won. He says, what have you done with it? And the guy who had won says, well, I was afraid. I knew you were a harsh master, so I, I just buried it in the ground. But at least I still have it here. I didn't lose it, I guess. Isn't that good enough? 
The master looks at the, the man and says, you're a faithless servant. And he casts him into hell. He casts, he casts him into the land of darkness where it says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I told you, Jesus taught about money a lot. My simple question to you, reflecting on these last two verses is, are you a trustworthy servant? Are you trustworthy? Let the Bible be the scan of your heart on this one, not me. I'm not trying to make rules up or anything. I'm not interested in rules or legalism or anything like that. I'm interested in seeing Christians learn how to worship properly and the kingdom of God go forward in power. And I want you to be interested in that. Are you a faithful servant in this area? The rich young ruler was right in a bunch of other areas, but not in this area. Are you faithful in this area? Because if you're a Christian, the, the one thing you want to hear at the end of your life is you want to hear the master look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted you with a little and now I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Will you pray with me? Father, um, Lord, I don't quite know how to pray after this message just because there's so much practical stuff here, but God, I, I, I ask Jesus that whatever is of you today, whatever was from you, that you would sear it into our hearts and bring about change, true change, godly change, the type of change that God's people are markedly different as a result of, that we would go out and live lives of worship of Jesus, that we'd glimpse of Jesus today, see the generosity that he's bestowed on us, and then desire to bring our life into alignment with him. Help us, Jesus. Whatever was not of you, whatever was of my own mind that needs to be quickly forgotten, God, I pray that you'd help us to forget it as if I had never said it. But Jesus, change us. We wanna be your people. In Christ's name, amen.